0: Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now. And planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy, and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to Wallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.
3: You got problems that you ought to be
1: concerned
0: with. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hey, everyone. It's me, Gabby Dunn. Trying, as usual, not to be bad with money. Also, you should know it's Gabby Dunn because there was just a whole theme song that played unless you missed the part where it says my name in the theme song. That's right. It says my name in the theme song. I'm important. No. It's really hard to be good with money. I have had this show for three years and I am still terrible, terrible with money Because we live in a society that clearly wants me to spend lots and lots of it. The average person reportedly sees about 4,000 advertisements every day. So how am I supposed to be good with money with all of that going on? And advertisers aren't the only ones telling us to spend. The news tells us over and over that the health of our economy depends on, that's right, consumer spending. It is basically our civic duty to buy lots and lots of things, whether we need those things or not. So with all these voices imploring us to spend money, it can feel like we're culturally addicted to shopping. But for some people, this addiction is a very real clinical condition. In fact, 6% of the U.S. population are what experts call compulsive buyers, which is the official term for shopping addiction. And even though most of us don't fall into that camp, we're all impacted by a culture that enables it. For example, we're told that we'll be happier or sexier or trendier if we buy certain things. Credit cards are literally set up to enable us to spend now and worry about the consequences later. Boy, don't I know it. And now the ease of online shopping turns the world into a total minefield for shopping addicts. To make things worse, it's an addiction we have trouble recognizing. Not that we're great at dealing with any addiction in this country. If you've been listening to this show for any amount of time, you know that I talk about that a lot. But shopping is one that's especially easy for us to brush off or misunderstand. And that makes getting help all the more difficult. So in this episode, we'll talk about what shopping addiction is and how our materialistic culture has made it so a lot of us equate who we are with what we have. That's coming up after the break. And we're back. And it's time to kick things off with April Benson, a psychologist and one of the leading experts in the field of shopping addiction, aka compulsive buying disorder. So, what compulsive buying disorder is?
3: It's when somebody shops and spends or even just thinks about shopping and spending so much that it's severely impacting their life in a negative way. We think about the financial negative first, because Mm -hmm. that is immediate for many. But there are interpersonal consequences, occupational consequences, personal development consequences.
0: It narrows your life. Yeah. So it's kind of the same as, you know, alcohol or like something where it just has to do with what happens when you buy. Like, what are the consequences for compulsive buyers and their families? The big
3: consequences are uh, going and, you know, being in debt up to your eyeballs, having to mm-hmm. declare bankruptcy, having big fights with family members or spouses or children, feeling like your life is empty and hollow. There are lots and lots of ways that this
0: shows itself. And you can't stop is it like wanting the things or is it convincing yourself that you need these things everybody is different mm-hmm.
3: and what i ask people to do when they have an impulse to buy something that they may not need may not use may not have money for they have a little card that i've given them that has six questions on the card along with a shopping bag and the questions are why am i here how do i feel do I need this? What if I wait? How will I pay for it? And where will I put it? Oh, that's great. And I tell them, if they can answer these questions to their satisfaction, preferably in writing, it's probably not a compulsive purchase.
0: So this is kind of always characterized as a a female problem. Like if you, you know, I think there was that movie with Amy Adams about having, being a shopping addict, confessions
3: right? of a shopaholic.
0: Yeah, 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 and um, and it's always kind of in media shown as like women buying clothes or shoes, but yeah, is this accurate at all? No, it is
3: not. There are a few things to say. One is that in 2006, we had a prevalence study done at Stanford University, and mm-hmm. that was a random sample of about 2,500 people. And the results showed that 5.8% of the U.S. population might be classified as compulsive buyer, and it was almost evenly divided between the two genders. However, men tend to be called collectors, which gives it, a refined kind of highbrow cast.
0: Yeah, it's like, uh, I guess men have, stereotypically have, you know, watch collections or car collections or sports memorabilia collections. Mm-hmm. And even like men with sneakers, right? Like friends of mine who are sneakerheads. Yeah. heads. Mm-hmm. It's a sneaker collection. Wow, I yes. never thought of it that way. Ha. Huh. What are the most common items compulsive buyers buy? I imagine it's internet shopping, but like that's just one method.
3: Yeah, for women it still seems to be clothing, jewelry, shoes, and accessories. Mm-hmm. And for men, you know, I think it's more big ticket items. You know, yeah. like it's, uh, the men with their cars or the, as you said, watches, cam- yeah. you know, computer, camera, electronics, sports memory, you know, whatever.
0: I mean, I think that, Choices kind of reflect society's expectations. Like women, I think, have to look a certain way, even like at work, that I think men could wear the same like two suits. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's like more pressure to buy more stuff, I think, and like more products.
3: I'll tell you something. There was actually a study done in England maybe five years ago, and it was about internet shopping. And it showed that men were coming to the internet at a rate faster than women. They were staying on the internet shopping longer than women. And they were even spending more in traditionally female categories like beauty products. Oh, that's interesting. Why? Well, I do think the internet gives men anonymity, you know, convenience, anonymity. Why are so many stores closing? People love to shop on the internet.
0: Well, also maybe, yeah, they don't want to buy so many like face creams in person, but they'll like spend $600 on yep. it on the internet.
3: <laughs> yep. yep. Anonymity.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Even like when you don't want to get judged by the salesperson for buying so much or whatever. And mm-hmm. but then if you buy it online, nobody has to know.
3: Then there are the people for whom it is the interaction with the person, the salesperson, the pitch person on QVC. That that's the draw. Oh, why? Because they want to be like that person. And if they buy that, you know, if I buy what they're wearing, what they're using, I'll be cool like them.
0: Interesting. Or to maybe even try to impress them, like go into the store and just have someone be like, pay them attention. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any patterns of like someone's socioeconomic background that affects their like how susceptible they are to compulsive buying? Or is it just anybody? Because a lot of times addiction is a thing that like, just affects you no matter, it, it can affect anybody. no Yeah, matter.
3: I think that's what this is. You know, there are people on welfare Yep. who, you know, use their welfare checks to compulsively buy
0: something. Or people that have so much money that they're like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just blow through all of it. Yeah. So in the past, you've referred to this as a smiled upon addiction. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what you mean by that? consumption fuels our economy advertising is all about the creation of desire and so it's seen as like a good like with black friday and stuff it's seen as like a good thing
3: yeah and after 9 11 president bush mrs bush and i want
0: americans to go shopping
3: right he didn't say drugging drinking gambling
0: right so obviously like i'm one of these people who's very susceptible to advertising and it's like such a huge part of our world and we have whole shows about it and everything, Um, you know, with alcohol and drugs, you can cut it out. Right. But with stuff like um, money and shopping, you can't not ever do it. Mm -hmm. But you also like can't cut it out. So you can't go on like, you know, a website without like, even if you don't go on Amazon, you can't go on a website without like a banner ad to buy something.
3: Well, the first thing is to arrange not to get the ads. You can do that hmm So temptation is removed.
0: Yeah. And you have to just set it up so that it's gone. Yes. I've heard people also say like that you should um, make it so that your credit card isn't automatic fill.
3: You know, if you're susceptible, mm-hmm. make it hard for yourself. Absolutely. Because it's that all important time between the impulse and the action where all the change can come.
0: Yeah. I also I talked to a woman last season about bipolar disorder and how compulsive buying kind of coincides with that too. And I imagine it coincides with a lot of mental illnesses, right? I mean, I think also like people get drunk and buy things or like Mm -hmm. like what other things do you see it coinciding with a lot? Well, I think in the study I
3: did, the most frequent things were depressive disorder and Quite a few people had had eating disorders in their background. Yeah. But this is a small sample that I had. Yeah. But in my practice over the course of all the years, I think eating and shopping are considered two of the most prevalent ways that women have of navigating the ups and downs of life. Mm -hmm. We think that If we change our body, if we change our home, you know, that you can. This is the point you can never get enough of what you don't really need. Mm -hmm. The stuff that you're buying, if you're buying compulsively, is not what you really need. You have to figure out what you really need and get that. Mm -hmm. So I have people access a questionnaire and you get a printout of your five highest strengths and then they do an exercise about putting your signature strengths to work. So it's always practical. How am I going to use my love of learning in the service of stopping over shopping? You know, just really thinking through. Yeah. How do you use your strengths? Thinking, you know, people construct lists of self-care and self-kindness, acts of self-care and acts of self-kindness, and they put them in a little journal and they keep them with themselves because you need to find tailor-made alternatives to the shopping. And you need to, in terms of people equating who they are with what they have, The more experiences we have of joy and confidence and competence in ways that make our hearts sing, that is something that starts to erode that kind of equation.
0: So shopping addiction is much more than just a money problem. There are deep psychological factors at work here, which is similar to any addiction. So I wanted to talk to someone who has firsthand experience with compulsive buying. That's coming up right after the break. Welcome back to Bad With Money. My next guest is Avis Cardella, author of Spent, Memoirs of a Shopping Addict. Today, Cardella is a freelance writer living in France, and her shopping is totally under control. But back in the 90s, she lived in New York City, where a perfect storm of factors led to 15 years of compulsive buying.
4: Part of it had to do with the time we were living in and the lifestyle that the 90s in New York,
1: mm-hmm.
4: it was the age of sex in the city and it was the age of um, shop till you drop and retail mm-hmm. therapy and all those expressions that were so popular at, in that era. And it was really difficult for me to get a handle on the fact that shopping every day was something that wasn't normal because mm-hmm. the truth is that most people thought of shopping as something uh, Normal, good, healthy, uh, it kept the economy going and for me what had happened just to get into my personal situation
0: a bit yeah absolutely like when did you realize it was a problem?
4: Well, I'll just go back to when it started so mm-hmm. after I realized that it was a problem for me, uh, I sort of went back in my mind to sort of connect it with something that had occurred and it did I did start to shop. Uh, as a way to get away from my grief after the death of my mother. My mm-hmm. mother had died suddenly, and I found myself needing to do something to relieve myself from that pain and that grief. So what I did was something that seemed perfectly normal and something that sort of um, felt good, and shopping felt good. Mm-hmm. It was a way to escape emotions, like a lot of other addicts. That's the um, the crutch that I was using the shopping.
0: So... Was there some reason that it was shopping and not like alcohol or drugs? You know, even though I feel like maybe I don't want to speculate either, but maybe it's like, you know, you're like, well, this isn't a problem. If I was doing drugs or alcohol, that would be a problem.
4: Well, yeah, that's what a lot of people thought at the time because. I didn't. I didn't know of any therapist who was dealing with shopping addiction at that time. Now there's a lot more. You can find therapists who deal with this as an as an addiction. Mm-hmm. So at that time, to say, okay, you know, I've got a problem like like a drug addict or like an alcoholic was totally not something that popped into your head. And anytime Mm. I would mention it, um, you know, to someone who was close to me that I didn't feel comfortable with my shopping, I didn't want to mention it because people would say, are you crazy? This is, you know, this is like perfectly normal. What's wrong? You know, I didn't get into a credit card debt until later on. Mm. And that was towards the end. And that was when I realized that it was something that could be dealt with on a psychological level, that it was something that I had to deal with um, emotionally, that it wasn't a normal thing to do. And then it was going to a credit counselor and dealing with the financial aspect of it. Still at that time, I didn't go to a therapist because I had no clue what therapist was out there. And it wasn't easy to find a therapist who dealt with that sort of thing. And I, the, the biggest factor was I couldn't afford a therapist either, which is right. kind of a catch-22 for a shopping <laughs> addict, you know.
0: Yeah. So, like, how long did it take for the happiness to wear off? Was it stuff that you, you weren't using? Like, a lot of times, you know, I'll, like, buy a shirt and then, like, two days later I'll be like, I'm never going to wear that.
4: It was very much, I'm never going to wear that uh, more often than not. I would actually have physical symptoms when I went shopping and I would get uh, my palms with sweat mm-hmm. and I would get kind of like in a in a bit of a kind of trance-like um, uh, feeling and, and feel um, that sort of high, feel very, you know, this sense of elation. And almost always, as soon as I walked out of the shop with the purchase in my hand I would feel like oh no and the the high would be gone and you know it's like once the purchase happened and I was out of the shop the whole experience was a deflated experience it was just finished so it wasn't like there was this happiness factor uh, that lasted and very often then what happened is I threw things in the back of my closet because there was no real pleasure in wearing them. So Mm -hmm. that was a factor also. Uh, The pleasure factor just wasn't there after the shopping. It was the shopping itself that was the the high of the buy, as I call it, you know. Mm -hmm. It was in the moment, and that moment passed quickly.
0: How much were you spending, if you don't mind my asking, because you said you didn't put it on credit cards till later, which is kind of the stereotype that you have, you know, from movies like confessions of a shopaholic and stuff where she's like freezing her credit cards and it's seen as sort of like this cute cutesy thing but like i think people um think like oh it's not a problem until you're like drowning in debt but was it stuff that you were like oh man i i can afford this but i should be spending this money in other ways or could be spending it on i don't know retirement or something else
4: well, yeah, um, that's a good thing to think about. Um, in the beginning, when I first started uh, shopping like that, I was in a—I had a, a full-time job, and I was in a relationship, and kind of had a good, steady income. And then I went freelance, and then I went out of that relationship, and then everything started to fall apart, and it was kind of a downward spiral. And that's when I realized that I couldn't continue to shop the way I had been shopping, yet um, I still continued to rack up credit card debt. Uh, I didn't rack up enormous debt because what had happened is I I just started buying less expensive things but was buying things still all the time, but still I ended up um, with enough debt that I ended up having to go to credit counseling, which was mm-hmm. the most humiliating thing. It was absolutely humiliating because I had grown up in a household where I was taught you know, to be wise with money. And in my youth, I had been wise with, with money. And then suddenly, I was this total opposite person. And that was something that really bothered me. It really humiliated me. And I felt that was, was something that was... Um, was kind of a dramatic turning point for me because it was this sort of personal failure because I, I had been brought up with this sense of being uh, responsible with money, you know.
0: Yeah, you internalize a lot of it and it's like a, a an intellectual or moral failing. We talk a lot about that on the, on the show about like, you know, you don't want – it's an isolating problem, money stuff, because you – you don't want to like tell people, you know. People either laugh it off, like you said, your friends did, or yeah. you don't want to tell people because they're like, uh, "You're an idiot." Um, was exactly. that how the yeah. credit counseling? What were were they nice to you there, or were they sort of like, "You're a dummy"?
4: <laughs> it was a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were nice. They were really gentle and really nice, and they were really supportive. But at the same time, they were like, "Gee, you know." this isn't good. And, you know, you're a dummy. Yeah, you're a dummy.
0: Yeah. But it's also not fair because I think even like alcohol and drug addiction certainly isn't taken seriously. And I think it's like, there's a mental health component that it isn't fair to be like, well, this is your personal failing. Of course it's not Unless you're not getting help.
4: Yeah. No, I think you're right about that because I think the not fair part about it is that I was uh, shopping because I did have a, a problem that you could qualify as a real addiction. So, to say that to somebody who is in that position is not fair. At the same time, I think there there has to be that wake up moment and that personal responsibility moment also. Um, you know, despite the fact that what you have is an addiction, I think you do have to face that, um, that reality if you're going to cope with it.
0: Mm hmm. So your book came out in 2010, but how has like it changed? You know, obviously there's like one click and you can just tell Alexa to buy something. And how has it changed for um, compulsive buyers?
4: I think it's insidious. I think it actually, it's gotten a lot easier for people who have a problem to be compulsive in their shopping. Mm-hmm. You're right with, uh, with things like one click, with things like, uh, you know, just telling, uh. A machine to to buy something for you. Um, I think that this idea of shopping for things that you don't really need and more and more things and having things to go along with certain parts of your life has become more insidious, particularly in the wellness arena, because I see now that it's sort of gone into this whole thing and in, in this wellness arena where you you're encouraged to to be well and to take up all these things. Uh, that are good for you, like yoga or like certain meditation and things like that. But then you have all these products that go along with it. And I'm completely um, blown away by the fact that this, all these products you're told to buy along with your wellness attempts. Mm-hmm. So um, so I think it's more difficult than ever, in fact. At the same time, there's more help than had ever been there. And there's more help now was there when i was uh, a compulsive shopper so that i think is a good thing
0: yeah you mentioned like you know definitely lifestyle stuff like goop and stuff where it's like you need this cream for your face and you need this specific uh body wash and you need this and you need that in like in terms of the wellness arena because i think it's like part of more so than like the 90 sex in the city thing now the thing is like chasing happiness in terms of like this zen sort of zen consumerism right
4: yeah you mentioned goop and i think goop has got it like really you know to the state of the art because they have some really great articles on their website but they also then really have the product too so i think we're living in an age where this just is not going to go away and i think people just um to be careful for themselves and understand what they need and what they don't need in their lives but for someone who does have a real compulsive shopping problem I think no matter what it's not about the external factors which may make it easier I think for a compulsive shopper it really comes down to the internal factors and knowing yourself why you're buying if you're buying to fill some sort of emotional hole inside yourself then no matter whether it's by one click or going into a brick and mortar shop, you're going to still seek that out and have that problem.
0: Well, so, right. So like with adi- with alcohol and drugs and stuff, you can sort of cut it off. But with stuff like gambling or shopping, you still kind of have to use money. And you also, you, you don't, you obviously, with, sh- with gambling, you're like, I don't go into a casino. But with shopping, you still have to like go to the grocery store or like buy a shirt. Um, so what are your shopping habits like now?
4: I have I'm a complete uh, I'm reformed completely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you can't cut I it out entirely, in, you know?
4: <laughs> no, I mean I'm I still shop. I love to sometimes buy nice things for myself. Um I just renovated a new home uh, in France here yeah. and and of course I like to buy some things to decorate the house and things like that, but but not compulsively. And it's a, it goes back to a bit what I just said. Um, I've dealt with the emotional factor that was fueling the shopping like that. So having dealt with the emotional factor, I'm in a completely different place. So when I approach shopping, it's really approaching shopping, really from a pleasure standpoint. In the past, when I was shopping compulsively, I really got very little pleasure from it. And that's the thing that most people don't understand because they think you're shopping the way they shop if they're shopping you know, in a way that gives them pleasure like on a normal in a normal way, they get pleasure from it. But I, when i was with when I was shopping uh, compulsively, when I was in shops every day, when mm-hmm. I was shopping to avoid emotion, it was not giving me pleasure. So right. now I understand the difference between the two. Uh, and now I can go shopping and buy a pair of shoes that it'll you know, bring me pleasure, and I actually wear them. In the past, when I would walk out of the shop and, you know the high of the buy would be gone, and I'd feel guilty about it. I almost—it was almost impossible for me to get pleasure from the purchase, from the thing that I had purchased, because everything was all wrapped up in this psychological factor of why did I buy that? Now I don't really want it, and feeling guilty, and all of those things. But today, none of that is a part of it. So that's the main difference. Mm. And uh, and I think anyone who's got that problem today, um, I. Think really, you have to deal with what's fueling your compulsive shopping. What is the factor behind it? Whether it's emotional, uh, you have some psychological traumatic thing that happened, or or some other reason why you're choosing uh, to shop compulsively. You can deal with your financial stuff also, but if you don't deal with the emotional stuff that's fueling it, I think it will always will always be a part of you. Then It'll always be there and be disturbing your shopping.
0: So let's say you're not a compulsive buyer, but you, you know, a a lot of us still buy things we don't need. Um, Are there any tips that you've picked up or that you, you know that could help people avoid the problem?
4: Well, one thing I I did for myself that really works, and still do it for myself today. um, I, I sort of give myself this sort of cooling off period. If I see something I really, really like, um, before I actually buy it, I sort of walk out of the shop, go do something else, think about it. And if I find myself, you know, be distracted by other things, what, go do something else, go go um, go have a coffee or go somewhere else, do something else. And if I find myself still thinking about it then I know I want it. And so mm-hmm. I'll approach it differently and go buy it. But if I find myself not thinking about it anymore, I'll realize, well, that maybe just was a momentary thing and it wasn't something I really need to have or really want to have. So I, I just uh, let it go then, you know, so it's not something that stays with me. But I give myself that sort of buffer of time.
0: I have friends who, like if you're going shopping, I'll have friends who are a little bit wealthier than me and they do this thing, that I hate where I'll like try something on and they'll be like, you have to get it. And like then, and I'll be like, stop saying that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like they'll be like, Oh you, Oh my God, you have to get it. It's like this enabling sort of like friend thing that,
4: I know that and I don't like it either.
0: (laughs) It's not a compliment to be like, oh my God, that $300 thing. Oh my God, you have to get like, just be like, it looks good on you. Don't say you have to get it.
4: Especially if you really can't afford it. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, Whatever, I guess. It's not cool.
0: susceptible to peer pressure is what we've learned
4: uh, um. <laughs> yeah i think everybody is and especially when you're shopping because you always feel vulnerable when you try something on and mm-hmm. you always say well oh, does it really look good and you know if someone says oh that looks great you know you're susceptible to kind of say oh wow okay if they think it really looks great it looks great
0: so even if you aren't addicted to shopping you've probably had a moment like the one we were just talking about Where someone says you have to have those new pants or those new shoes. And it really feels like you have to have them. Peer pressure is real, guys. It's not just for drugs or alcohol. It's for any addiction, really. So how did we get this way? According to my next guest, this kind of materialistic thinking is programmed into us at a super young age. Like a lot of things on this show. And there are a few things parents can do to maybe prevent it from happening. And a few ways that if you already parented this way, you can fix yourself. So stay tuned for that. We're back and we're still talking about shopping addiction, but you don't have to be addicted to shopping, like medically addicted, to have an unhealthy relationship to material possessions. Lonwyn Chaplin is an associate marketing professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. In 2015, she co-authored a study called Material Parenting, How the Use of Goods in Parenting Fosters Materialism in the Next Generation. So bad news, guys. She says there might be a problem with rewarding kids with gifts. What happens is is then there's
5: so much value that's placed on these material goods that children over time would just begin attaching their self-worth to owning certain things. Mm-hmm. They'll attach their happiness to having things, having more things. Mm-hmm. And over time, as they enter into adolescence, there's even more pressure to own certain brands, for example. And remember, parents are disciplining kids by taking away things. Right. They're rewarded with material things and they're disciplined by having things taken away from them. So in that 2015 study, what we did was we sampled adults and we asked them to recall their childhood and whether they received material goods as rewards and whether they were punished by having things taken away from them by their parents. And the adults who grew up with parents who took away material things or rewarded them with material things were more materialistic. They judged people's success based on what they owned. They judged their own success based on what they owned. And they were happier if they owned more things. So what that study shows is that how you grew up really transfers over to your thinking as adults.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, we've talked about that a lot on this show. And, you know, we had uh, someone on season one who talked about how when they were sad, their parents would take them to buy a little like puppy doll at the pharmacy and how that like translated into spending while sad because that was how it was like mitigated their, you know, their emotions were mitigated. Exactly. So your research is critical of gift giving um, as a way for parents to show love. Uh, So should they avoid gifts altogether or just scale it back a bit? I'm not a parent, so I I don't like in my mind, I'm like, oh, God, like if I can imagine just being like here, I don't know, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Right now. Well, I am a parent and I do give my kids gifts. Yeah.
5: Our children are growing up in a very commercialized world. Right. So they're they're going to see and I actually think that if you scale back too much and you shelter your children from advertisements, from marketing messages, they'll never learn. So the minute they are not near you, they're going to go crazy. The right. minute if they go away to college and they have to manage their finances, they're going to go crazy because they've been sheltered their entire lives. So right, yeah. I actually think that it's okay and I haven't done a study to look at, um, specifically how much parents should give their kids and how much they should not. I haven't done that, but just Mm -hmm. based on studies that I have run on kids, materialism and their self-esteem and parenting style. If parents have an open relationship with their children and they foster a sense of self-worth that is completely separate from what you own. So you know, let the kids explore their interests in music and art and STEM and whatever it is, know what your mm-hmm. children are truly interested in, not what you're interested in or what you want your children to be interested in, but what they are interested in. And it may not be anything that you know anything about, right? but it's something that they want to explore. That gives them self-confidence, that builds their self-esteem. And guess what happens? When they feel good about themselves, there's less of a tendency to succumb to peer pressure, especially mm-hmm. when it's buying those, you know, $200 pairs of sneakers, the kids will just feel like that's not who I am. That's not where I want to put my money. They have that confidence. Yeah. And it starts at home. So all the marketing messages can be thrown at children, but you know what? The kids who do well in the marketplace and can question those marketing messages and can look at the pictures. Have you ever walked down the cereal aisle and just looked at how colorful some of the cereal boxes are. And they have pictures of these very fresh blueberries and very fresh strawberries. Well, really little kids think that there are fresh blueberries and fresh strawberries inside those boxes right? because that's what they see. So as a parent, when you're walking down the cereal aisle, point it out to the kids. You do realize there aren't fresh strawberries in that box, right? Like let them know. That's a critical moment for them to learn about marketing messages and what marketers are capable
0: of doing Mm -hmm. and how they can be manipulated. My parents would always like with toys and stuff, they would be like, Uh they make it look better in the commercial. Like if you actually got that toy, it wouldn't, you know, it (laughs) wouldn't be. And there was just a tweet that people were responding to that was like, what's the toy that looked the coolest in a commercial and then was the shittiest in person. (laughs) And it was like almost every 90s toy, you know? Mm
5: -hmm. Yeah. And that's so critical because these little kids lack those cognitive skills. They're very perceptual. So what they see is what they believe. And unless right. there's a responsible adult to teach them and to explain to them, they're not going to learn to think critically about messages. So shielding them, never allowing kids to see a commercial ad is not the way to go.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about like striking a, a balance. So what what are the long-term consequences of materialistic values at a, at a young age? The long-term consequences...
5: Include things such as just a constant need to replenish what you have, Mm -hmm. even though what you have is plentiful and very good quality. Like, think about the smartphone. How many people upgrade when they really don't need to upgrade? And that's just something that you just kind of get caught in this cycle. You want to have the latest. You want to have the latest because you think it's going to make you happy. But then you get it and then you're not happy because then there's another latest version that's out there and then you want to get that one. So you're mm-hmm. caught in this vicious cycle. And from an early age, if you're being punished by your parents are taking away your video games, guess what becomes even more valuable? These video games that you can't have. Right. And so what we're really doing is we're reinforcing how important it is to have material things in, in your life. And when you are an adult, you continue to reward yourself. Like I do something great at
0: work, I'm going to go shopping. Of course. Or I want to make my friends happy, I'll buy them something. Well, the friends thing is so, you're right, because, you know, you're like, oh, I could spend time with them. Mm
2: -hmm. Or like,
0: you know, if you feel guilty, you could get them a gift. Or you could be like, let me. I think like a lot of parents might feel guilty about spending a lack of time. So they're like, how can I win the child's affection, I know, a gift. Right. And there
5: have been studies that have shown that children who come from divorced families tend to be more materialistic than those who come from two parent family homes.
0: Yeah. Well, it's weird. The first joke that we make about someone getting divorced to try to make them feel better is like two Christmases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the first joke. People make those
5: jokes because I think it's something that you can easily identify with happiness and material things. It's a very concrete Mm -hmm. thing, especially for children. Because if you think about, oh, I'm going to reward you by spending more time with you. To a kid, (laughs) yes, they do want to spend time with their parents and loved ones. But to a kid who's very perceptual, who's very concrete, time is very abstract. And they don't really get that. So that's why parents resort to material things because it's that teddy bear, it's that doll, it's that bike, whatever it is, it's something that's very tangible.
0: Yeah. But people use it as like, like I remember kids getting uh, like five bucks per A, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Their, so guess what was like, happen? Right.
5: As an adult, that's what they continue to do. They will continue to reward themselves when they do well, and they will judge other people's success based on
0: what they have. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also like, well, how do you motivate the kid to get the A? You have to start so young being like, you're motivated by the A itself. (laughs) Yeah. You're
5: you're right though. You have to start very early on so that it just becomes a natural thing. You Mm -hmm. can't start that when they're 12, 13 years old. Mm -hmm. You can't start telling them, oh, you should be motivated for just doing well. Well, you can't do that to a child who has been getting $5 for every high grade for the past right. five, six years. You, you just can't.
0: Yeah. Well, America itself is so consumer driven. I mean, I'm just thinking even about like the tooth fairy and Santa and like mm-hmm. all this stuff. Like it's so, we were talking about in this episode, it's like so consumer driven. And even like, I mean, I don't even know how you would avoid the peer pressure of like, I remember everyone had Tiffany bracelets when I was mm-hmm. in school or like, I mean, What other sort of messages do, do kids get from advertisers that might be harmful?
5: I think messages that are, are directly tied to their sense of self, like, Mm -hmm. um, that if you're not cool, if you don't have this, everyone has this, all the cool kids have this, all those types of messages are, can be very damaging to children and put undue stress onto them because they're already, their bodies are changing. They just feel awkward just socially, they're more socially aware where they actually care very much about what people think of them. And then to hear Mm -hmm. the message that everybody has this and then the child doesn't have it, that's very damaging.
0: Oh, I used to like, like I didn't have a hair straightener and everyone Mm -hmm. else did. And I would like say to my parents, like, you want me to be a loser. (laughs) (laughs) That's your plan.
5: uh, And this is I mean, and and you you say that jokingly, but it's so true that it comes back on the parents. It comes back on the parents because the kids will blame the parents. And so if the parents could get a hold of um, what the children understand from the marketing messages.
0: So hearing all of this, like obviously a lot of people listening to this are adults or not parents. Um, So how, what can we do if we relate to like how, you know, we were treated as children? What can we do to like change ourselves, fix ourselves, be better? Yeah, that's a great question.
5: I think that for those of us who are hearing things about the negative consequences of growing up as a materialistic child, now we start to wonder like, oh no, how can I save mm-hmm. myself now as an adult? And I think just being more mindful, being aware, and especially if, you, if people are listening to your podcast and all of your Uh, different interviews, if they really process the information, think about their lives, think about how they grew up, think about how they spend money now, think about how much they're saving money or investing, and just be very mindful of the fact that, yes, most people do go out and celebrate and purchase things when they do well. So now I'm going to scale back a little bit. Just be mindful. Am I doing that? And to what extent am I doing that? To what extent am I looking at what people own and judging their success based on the car that they drive or the clothes that they wear, the handbag that they're carrying. Am I doing that? Because I think a lot of times people don't even realize that they're doing it. But once you realize that this is something that a lot of people do, you're more mindful of your own actions and your own thoughts and your own judgments of other people. And I think that might be helpful. I don't know. I haven't done a study, but that's a great question, which makes me want to do a study like that. (laughs)
0: That may be my next study then. If this episode has taught us anything, it's that we don't just spend money because we want things. In fact, there are deep emotional and psychological motivations behind our spending. Which is the whole thesis of this show. And my problem exactly. (laughs) In some cases, like Avis's, spending is a crutch, and we find ourselves buying things we don't need in order to cope with trauma or insecurity at me next time. And the happiness we get from those purchases evaporates almost instantly. So maybe we need to shift our thinking about the psychological and emotional root of this to get the help we or our friends need instead of just brushing it off. I mean, we definitely brush off all other addictions, but we certainly brush off shopping addiction. It's not a joke. In other cases, spending can bring us actual happiness. We can buy experiences instead of buying things. Or if we're really looking for a rush, we can buy things from businesses that align with our values or boycott businesses that don't. And that's a big one, friends. I keep thinking about this interview with Neeru Paharia, a researcher at Georgetown University. She was on an episode of the podcast Hidden Brain where she said that expressing our political beliefs with money can sometimes be even more satisfying than voting. You can kind of think about it in terms of what ends up being more tangible. So if we think about voting, it's sort of an abstract process.
5: It's not very public. Whereas when you buy a product or avoid buying a product, it's very tangible.
0: Obviously, voting is important. So let's not start buying things instead of going to the polls. But like I said at the beginning of this episode, we live in a world that really, really wants us to spend money and that really operates around money. And to be honest, it's hard to avoid giving into that message. So until we can move off the grid and live our subsistent lifestyles, let's pay more attention to why we're spending money and prioritize the things that actually make us happy and the things that make the world a better place. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who, say it with me, are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who spent a year not buying anything. Oh my God, how did they do that? Is that even possible? We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell, Cameron Drews, and Sam Dingman, and we're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and our show artist by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I will see you next week unless I buy myself into oblivion. Just kidding, I'm not going to do that. Also, take addiction seriously. That's just in general. A little note from me to you. Okay, bye.